Hello and welcome to the Challenging University Podcast with me, your host, Tony Kent. Now, when you have to start work at 16 years old to contribute to the household budget, how do you avoid becoming trapped in low-income employment? And how do you meaningfully re-enter the workplace as a young single mum? In this episode of the podcast, IT channel legend Julie Simpson shares the impact of her dad's death on her education and family circumstances, how she carved out a rewarding career of her own choosing, why she and her husband sold their house to fund the creation of the business at a time when they had four children under the age of 12 between them, the difference between being academic and being smart and how she tests for this in interviews, and some top tips for business founders on how to hand over the reins. Julie's story is one of resilience, confidence, and being alert to opportunities. I know you're going to enjoy it. Hello, Julie. Hello, Tony. Um, This is exciting, and it's long overdue. I am really pleased that you've agreed, and thank you for agreeing to come on the Challenging University podcast. Oh, you are most welcome. It's something I've been desperately wanting to do for some time and just haven't had the capacity. So really pleased to be here. Really appreciate the invitation. Brilliant. Now, we've known each other for a long time, a long time, actually, a long time. Um, But not everybody that listens to the podcast will know of you, although I think some of them do know of you. Um, But could you please, for the listeners today and the listeners to come, share your full name and what it is that you do for a job today? Sure. So um, my name is Julie Simpson. I am the founder and CEO of channel marketing agency Resource IT. Resource IT is an organization I started in 2003 and we work with technology companies to help them with their marketing and business development. Fantastic. Um, so, and full disclosure, I guess, like we met when I was a partner account manager, I think, at Microsoft. We did. Yeah. I remember meeting you in the hallways and then I did go on to work for you, with you, for you, for for a little while. So, um, And what a pleasure it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we'll try and keep this on topic. Let's go back in time to a time before we knew one another. Um, back to your school days. Can you share your memories of secondary school? Oh, yeah. Um, I loved school, actually. I really did love school. Um, But I remember my first day at secondary school being completely overwhelmed by the sheer size of it. You know, I'd come from a tiny little school in Basingstoke called Fairfields and went to Harriet Costello in Basingstoke. And I just felt so small. Um, And so childlike in this atmosphere, because suddenly you're with kids that are actually nearly adults. They're 16 and you're 11. Um, So I I remember that um, extremely well, how how, um, nervous and overwhelmed I felt by the kind of amount of kids that were there and how big it was. And and do you think you were... Because I briefly went to Harry Costello, only for, I don't know, a couple of terms but my memory of it is that did it used to be like an all-girls school or an all-boys school it's quite like domineering kind of building wasn't it yeah it's huge and it was an all-girls school until I think about 1974 or something like that when they opened it up to 
um, to boys as well. But yeah, it was originally a, an all girls school. And when I started, we had a very old fashioned headmistress that used to wear the actual, you know, the master's cape and um, an mm -hmm. assembly with the um, the board uh, hat with the tassel and stuff. Um, wow. And she was a um, and her name was Mrs. Everest. Right. And uh, Miss Everest, actually. And she was, yeah. you know, we were scared. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that being like quite intimidated by the teachers and certainly by her. Um, but I think at, at senior school, I sort of is where you morph from being a child to being, you know, a teenager stroke, becoming an adult. And I did love the scope of subjects that, that I experienced when I went there, you know, typing doing yeah. typing you know it was amazing having a typewriter and doing typing and the sports curriculum um you know I played netball and hockey so loved yeah. it absolutely loved it and then um also it was the first time they did this experiment where they offered our, and they only did it once in our year in uh, to be able to take Spanish instead of French um, as a compulsory language and so there was myself and probably maybe about 20 of us that chose mm -hmm. it um, and that was really exciting as well. Um, and I loved the art room and I loved English literature. Yeah. Um, I was really excited about Shakespeare and we did To Kill a Mockingbird and lots of classics. And my English teacher was fantastic. Um, so I loved that. And then I also loved um, music and drama. I wanted to be on the stage. Mm. So, um, But I remember my drama teacher because um, there were two brothers, two my next two brothers up from me that went to the school before I did, who were, let's say, just had a different reputation. <laughs> and um, I remember walking into the drama class and the teacher saying to me, Dixon, because that was my maiden name was Julie Dixon. Are you a Dixon? And I, I said, yes. He went out. Wow. And I wouldn't even let me I'm like 11 years old or something thinking wow. what am I supposed to do because my brothers were you know quite disruptive it seems so yeah um yeah the that I remember you know all of those feelings it's very you know when someone asks you the question it's very easy to kind of recall um yeah. you know, how you felt and and you know the excitement but also overwhelmed and the new experiences and how did you overcome that because I'm as the eldest of you are very aware of that as you move through a school when your siblings join or you've got siblings above or below you there is that you get judged based on your Definitely. family name your siblings reputation did you ever get let back in the drama room eventually but he did give me a hard time for the whole five years I was there and you know I was quite talented actually at drama yeah. and um, quite confident and I found it really frustrating that that judgment was there because I wasn't my brothers and they weren't the best, most committed. I actually studied quite hard. I was quite good at sports. I didn't skive. You know, I was a, a good girl, if you like. Yeah. And, um, you know, was was um, I had to work really, really hard. But I, I don't think I ever felt that I'd been forgiven for being Julie Dixon by that particular teacher, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm doing a whole episode on that um what happened <laughs> when you came to your GCSD so what did you take then because you've got a good mix there of like academic and and arts the arts um what did you choose to study 
Well, it um, it was all going wonderfully well for me until I was 14 and then my father died. And I went from being pretty much a straight A student to not turning up. I started smoking. I discovered boys mm. um, and my education kind of veered off. And I'm really disappointed that that wasn't um, noticed by the school. I I, I feel now for somebody that was been successful and then had such a traumatic experience that the education system would support that much better, but they didn't really. Mm. And um, I actually, I uh, came out with, um, so I did, Eng I did English, obviously English literature and language. I did typing. I got a distinction. Mm. I did Spanish, which I passed, um, got a GCSE in Spanish or O level mm. actually at the time, geography, um, I didn't do history. Um, I, oh, RE. Yeah. Because <laughs> that was always quite straightforward to get a tick. I got yeah. seven or eight kind of classic subjects. I continued to do, um, I didn't take drama because mm -hmm. of the teacher. Mm -hmm. And I should have done, really. Um, and um, in those days, you didn't take sports as a qualification. But I stayed um, I played for the school netball and hockey and played for Basingstoke actually netball for a few years afterwards. So came out of school with, I think, seven or eight O-levels um, yeah. by quite a miracle, I feel, because yeah. it certainly wasn't my motivation in the last couple of years of school. I found it really hard to to do what I was told and, and to find the love for it that I'd always had because I'd had obviously such a traumatic experience. Yeah. And it's like, like, you, you know, having lost my dad at the same age, I think that I remember being told, could you just knuckle down yeah. for your mum or for the memory of your dad? And I remember being like furious. I, I hope it's, I don't think it's like that now. I would no. like to think it's not like that now. I hope not. I really do. Mm. Um. So what did you do that you so you completed your education, you took your exams, you're a good all-rounder. Mm -hmm. Where do you go? Well, I really wanted to, um, I wanted to be a journalist or a travel writer. You know, I had a real thirst for for traveling and, um, and I loved English so much. Um, but going to college was not an option. Um, you know, mum had me and two other, um, you know, my two brothers were still at home. And, you know, frankly, she needed the money. So I had to go to work. So I literally left school on the Friday at 16. And on Monday, I went to work. Um, and I went to work at the AA, the Automobile Association yeah. of Basingstoke. Didn't everybody work there back yeah. in the day? <laughs> Um, and so there was no question of, um, of college. I didn't even ask, you know. I, I don't think she would have, mum would have... Um, you know, stood in my way or or not made it work. In, but I just didn't think it was an option. I just had to go and earn some money and put my pennies in into to the household. Simple as that, really. And what what did you what did you do? So what what was your first job? I went to work at the AA in what was called the receipts unit. So it was this Thanks. huge office. And we took in um, basically payments people were making for their AA membership. Right. And I sat on the special special accounts or something, which was basically people who'd paid by credit card. Mm. 
Yeah. Or people who had broken down at the side of the road and paid by cash. Yeah. Um, and my job was to sit there and I had these A4 pads yeah. and I used to sit there all day writing out credit card numbers Right. and an amount and the person's name and then adding it up on a manual ad adding machine yeah. and attaching a re receipt to it and by the end of the day I would have you know a, a sort of 20 centimeter high pile of sheets and then yeah. I had to add it up at the end of the day and put it in an envelope and log it in the system um, and we had one green screen <laughs> computer <laughs> in the corner of the office and there must have been a hundred people in that office and there was one green screen computer. Wow. There. And were you allowed to use it? Very, very occasionally, but you had to book a slot. Yeah. I, I was in charge of the photocopier, which was a very important job. Yeah. So I did mm -hmm. know how I just to feel very important when I got called to come and load the paper yeah. or change the ink card. Step aside, people. Yeah. I <laughs> will look after the photocopier. Yeah. <laughs> you know. What? interview process for that job by the way what what sorry tony what was the interview process for that job by the way interview process well yeah. um my mum knew yeah. um one of the supervisors <laughs> and i think over a game of darts and a <laughs> and a gin and tonic persuaded him yeah. to to give me a job i don't think he really had a job but i think she just or can yeah. you, you know, give my Julia yeah. job kind of thing? And he'd agreed to do it. So I did have an interview. I do remember him asking me about my school absences. And as I mentioned, because of the last couple of years, yeah. I probably wasn't there as much as I should have been. Yeah. And him saying to me, oh, I've had a report. I, I, I got in touch with your school and they said you've had 37 absences. And I'm like, oh, no, they're sessions. <laughs> I said, it's only Quick half thinking. of that. Yeah, it's only half of that. It's like it's like it's like um, it's eighteen. It's not it's not thirty seven. He was like, oh okay, and then just filed it, and that was the end of that. So that was my first job, forty five pounds a week. I used to get. Wow, I mean, not bad, <laughs> not bad. When you're sixteen, is it? Yeah, it Lovely. was. It was amazing. Although I gave my mum, I always gave my mum a third of it. Yeah, and then as I got a pay rise until I left home, she her money went up. Yeah. So she, it was a third to mum, a third saved, and then I was allowed to keep a third. Okay, so that's good. I mean, in terms of financial literacy and something that I've, you know, see it's talked about a lot now, that early principle, it, it's good grounding for Yeah, life. it really was. Yeah. It was very, it was very much so, and um, something I carried through with my children, actually. Yeah. So what did you, you've been like, you know, at the AA, big, big brand on the CV straight away. <laughs> um, did you get, a, what did that sort of inspire in you in terms of thinking about where you wanted to go, what you wanted to be doing? Did you look around the office and go, oh, check out, check out the managers with their own offices with yeah. a door? Know, where they can sit in there and smoke um, <laughs> I, well I was more interested in the phone actually in those days because there would be one phone in the middle of the desk of about 30 <laughs> people yeah and um I used to give out the number all the time to my friends and family and things and I remember being called in one day and said Judy that phone is not there for your personal use <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay 
Um, so the phone was, you know, a big thing, desk phone. Um, I had a couple of jobs at the AA. So I did get, um, I did move um, up. I moved, I was in receipts unit for two years and then I had another job slightly more senior for two years. And I think maybe up to a hundred pounds a week or something by the yeah. time I left. Yeah. And then I, um, I don't know, it was a stage thing or um, my love of art. Um, I got a job uh, working for an auctioneer. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I went as an auctioneer's assistant for three years, I think. Um, yeah. And that was absolutely amazing. So we went to all sorts of wonderful places in London, all these beautiful paintings and antiques, the jewellery. Yeah. Um, and on auction day, I used to sit beside the auctioneer and, um, you know, watch while he kind of agreed the lots and who'd bought what. And yeah. I used to type the catalogue because obviously I had a typing distinction. So I was able to do that. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it was it was amazing. The problem with that role was that mm. because we only had a sale about once every three months, mm. the rest of the time was actually quite tedious. Yeah. Um, so it was people coming in with their sort of stainless steel tea sets and thinking it was worth a hundred pounds and wanting to put it yeah. in the auction and I'd have to kind of take it in and write it down and box it up and you know, yeah. so um I was there for yeah, two or three years, I can't remember in total, but auctioneer's assistant, loved it, absolutely brilliant, great fun. Can I just say AA and then auctioneer's assistant? Ah, <laughs> Yeah, we just add on the Alcoholics Anonymous, which came later, and we've got the full house. <laughs> so how do you go from, I'm interested now in the journey from auctioneer to tech industry founder what happens how does how does that happen uh, well I think um I went so after a couple of years of the auction assistant I went to work for um actually an ISV um mm. although I didn't realize that's what they were yeah. at the time um yeah. based in so-called IMREX uh right, systems okay. US-based company who wrote financial services software I got a job as a PA to two of their sales directors and then from there went on to the help desk and started to have an interest in technology in that role so I was maybe 21 22 that kind of age still there was no internet and email in the business mm -hmm. at all it was all green screen and so on yeah. and then I left there because I uh, when I was 23 or 24 I had um, got pregnant with my first child mm -hmm. took a year off um, and then when she was 18 months old the marriage broke up and I found myself without a job with an 18-month-old child and a mortgage. And okay. then things had to change quickly mm. um, yeah. faced with those um, those challenges. So I um, got a job working at Motorola in the telesales department. Yeah. Someone told me, you know, sales, oh, you've got the gift of the gab. Yeah, yeah. That's what they used to say. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I went to work at Motorola and then from Motorola, I um, went to a print company called GBC in Basingstoke, which is also a big employer. Mm -hmm. And I was selling, you know, the ring binders on the edge of, um, you know, the yeah. you know, when you when you bind documents. Yeah. And I'd got into the team that I worked out that you because it was commissioned. Yeah. If I sold those boxes of white ring binders, I think mm -hmm. I earned something like seven pence a box in commission. Yeah. Yeah. I got them to put their logo on it. Yeah. I got 17 pence a box. 
Uh-huh. So I started to get into kind of branding and marketing. And then yeah. I started asking questions about business cards and kind of other elements. So I guess what I was learning yeah. there was the power of marketing and branding and the whole cross-sell, upsell, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then speaking to different people in the organization because the sales director is responsible for the business cards, but the marketing director is responsible for the binding cones. And so I started to learn about networking around an organization. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was there for a few years. And then from there, I got a job at Microsoft um, Systems Integrator called ICS in Basingstoke. Yeah. And I remember my interview there, I did this pitch on ICS solutions and the missing ingredient, which was, yeah. of course, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I really found my groove um, in that role. And I went from being doing telesales within a year. I was running the team of telesales yeah. people. Then I got a field job within a year. I was the field um, leading the field people. And mm-hmm. then Microsoft alliances came quite quickly. So mm. that business, um, I became Microsoft was my only customer. So yeah. it was my job to position um you know that partner to Microsoft. Yeah. And I was looking for opportunities for them to hire our facility, for us to work with them on customer projects, for them to take our developers, and and that's yeah. how I made my my number. Um yeah. So, and from there, then it then became, you know, then resource IT. And the step was that I had a lot of Microsoft people saying to me, you realize there are 25,000 Microsoft partners out there that would be interested in the skills that you have and the network and how you've learned to work with us. Mm-hmm. And lots of partners saying to me, how do you get this relationship with Microsoft? Yeah. Uh, and so and my husband actually was working for an ISV in Basingstoke and they'd offered him the MD role. They'd got 100 million of VC funding, yeah. um, but he wasn't very happy in the role or the yeah. company didn't believe in the strategy. So one day we decided um, we were going to do it. So we sold our house, Tony. We took our equity. We had four children between us under 12. Yeah. We took our equity. We both gave up our jobs. And we literally just held hands and jumped off a cliff. And I, I mean, I don't know. It was amazing. It was crazy when I look back now. Absolutely crazy. Certainly focused the mind. And at this couple of questions, there's a lot of questions I've got, but I was wondering that. So in those sort of early days, when you're in like the IT industry and you said you're doing telesales, then you're moving into field sales and you're working, um, you know, for a, a large organization, then facing into Microsoft, was there ever any question about whether you had a degree, whether you understood computer science? Did, was your experience of being in and around the tech industry one of, if you've got the right attributes, you're all right? Yeah, 100%. I was never... I don't think I ever considered that that was something that would be a barrier for me, that I hadn't gone um, to college or university or had a degree. I mean, I was envious of people that seemed cleverer than I was in my mind. They might have used bigger words or Mm. um, and then also were in some ways better connected because they had university friends. Yeah. And I didn't have any of that. Yeah. Um, so I remember probably some envy around other people that had had a different journey to me, mm. but I never felt that I shouldn't have a seat at the table or I wasn't mm. as capable as they were. Never felt held back by it. And I'm I'm intrigued actually that you say that because if I also think about like you said initially 
you'd taken time off to have your first child and then you found yourself as a single parent with a toddler and a mortgage and you've gone into Motorola and then with your now husband <laughs> with four children under the age of 12 you've gone yeah let's just start a business there doesn't appear to me to be a sense of I will be held back because of <laughs> yeah I just um I you know when you put it like that um <laughs> The Motorola thing, so what happened there was I was talking to a friend of mine and um, he was saying, no, don't you think you should get a job and like sort this out because, <laughs> you yeah. know. And I said, oh, I could get a job tomorrow. And he went, oh, of course you could. I'm like, no, no, I really could. I could get No, you couldn't. Yes, yes, I could. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was it. The next morning I sort of basically phoned around a whole bunch of companies and asked what roles they had and spoke to a couple of temping agencies. And by 12 o'clock I was sat at a desk in motor. <laughs> <laughs> you sticking my fingers up. Yeah, <laughs> on the on the uh, yeah group phone. I don't know. Clear the desk. I'm having this phone. Exactly. I've got a exactly. job. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it is just about the not taking no for an answer, determination. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there was a need from a financial perspective. Mm. I think the thing about starting Resource IT was, um, I just felt that I wanted to make my own silly decisions rather yeah. than be following somebody else's, which if I'm really honest, Tony, I thought I knew everything when I came out of ICS and I was going to be amazing and it was going to be amazing. I actually found out very quickly that I knew Jack about what <laughs> um, And I, we had to learn pretty blooming quickly, you know. Um, we didn't yeah. pay ourselves for the first year. We used up all our equity. We set the company up and yeah. um, it was it was really, really hard, really hard. Um, but fortunately, my network, my relationship with Microsoft, the respect that mm -hmm. I don't in the industry, the friends I had, mm -hmm. I did get, there's always there were people there that were willing to to take a chance on us and and do some work and initially I was the company yeah I, and I was going to ask you so how did you set the business up you know where what did you kind of learn along the way in terms of going right yeah today I'm employed tomorrow <laughs> taking the XD out of the house I mean my husband we're going to set this business up any Pulse of wisdom from that experience? <laughs> Great question. I um, initially, we, I, I had a whole bunch of things I knew about. Mm. So I had a black book of technical contractors that I had been using to extend our capability and the partner I worked for and trainers and so on. Mm. I had some amazing relationships with people at Microsoft who I'd worked with and um, delivered a solution to them in some way or another through the work I'd done. So I had a good, good, solid reliability reputation. Mm. <clears throat> I knew about alliances with Microsoft. I knew about sales because I'd been doing right at the sharp end, telesales yeah. and yeah. then onto field sales. And I knew about sales management to a point. Yeah. Um, I knew about Microsoft technology. I mean, those days it was NT4 and VB6 and, you know, it was before .NET yeah. even, right? Yeah. Um, and so I basically just got, got in touch with everybody that I knew and pitched them on whatever it was 
that I thought they might like to buy. So you're kind mm. I was kind of chucking them up at the wall to see what would stick. Um, and so initially I was making the phone calls and doing the telesales. I was doing the alliances for people. So yeah. they were hiring me as a resource. Yeah. And I very quickly didn't have enough capacity. So then I found someone that I knew that did telesales mm. and I paid them. We went 50-50 on what I'd meant. So that became the first employee. And then somebody else that I knew that did training. So, you know, worked yeah. on that. And we grew the business, actually. In the first year, we went from naught to a million pounds. Wow. Um, which was incredible. I mean, the bank loved it, you know, 100,000 yeah. a month going through. They yeah. were like, what the hell is going on here? Actually, when I looked at the P&L at the end of the year, we made about 30 grand. <laughs> oh. <sighs> so it wasn't actually that successful. Um, but again, you learn. Like, I don't think you would speak to any entrepreneur that doesn't say, yeah, you've got to get it wrong a few times before it works. But over the years, yeah. we kind of learned. And then our groove very much became about helping technology businesses do business development well, mm -hmm. do marketing effectively and make the most of their alliance partnerships. And so we yeah. over the over time were able to shape those um, those services and grow, obviously, to to what we've got today, which is amazing. And you, and I was just thinking, actually, is it been nearly 20 years? Nearly 20? Yeah, it was 2003. It's 20 years this year. So, congratulations. Happy oh, anniversary. Thanks. How, in building the business and thinking about your experiences and how you come up through the industry, how does that influence your hiring practices and how you've brought people in and, and what the company looks like today? Another great question, of course. Um, I believe that the resource IT is as strong as it is because of the differences in the employees. So we have a wide variety of people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ages, different places in their life. And that gives us so much richness in terms of what our knowledge is and all of those brains, they're all different. Mm -hmm. And that is you know, massively important, especially for a business that we are, you know, channel agency. Mm. Um, it particularly helps my um, my background. I, I look for people that are smart mm. and smart people are not necessarily academically, you know, um, furnished with A-levels coming out of their ears and degrees and so on. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to have those qualifications to be smart because you know, exhibit A to myself, I felt mm. that I was quite smart and yet I hadn't done any of those things. So mm. I have this some um, technique in an interview, which, um, which I use, which I, I'm happy to share. So the biggest thing I think that, um, makes, has made me successful is my recall. Mm. So I can have a conversation with somebody and mm. because I have learned to intensely listen to what people say, mm. and I mean intensely listen, then I can um, make them feel special. I can go back on the things they've said to me. I can, mm. you know, meet them again and remember who their um, their family is or where they what where they were when the last time I saw them, etc. Yeah. So what I look for is recall. And, and I say to people in an interview, I'll say to them, um, right, I've got a question to ask you. Mm. And I want you to listen really, really carefully. Mm. 
um, and uh, and then answer the question. So they sort of, you know, get ready. And so then I say, um, what would your best friend say about you? What keeps you awake at night? And give me an example of when something went wrong at work and what you did about it. Yeah. And so what I'm testing there is recall. So what happens is people remember the first question, my best friend, often they'll go off on a tangent and they'll talk about their best friend and this happens and that happened and da, 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 and, and yeah. then they'll go, what was the second one? <laughs> That's not what I'm looking for. Right? Yeah. I didn't say you couldn't write it down. So you could have written yeah. it down. No problem at all. So if yeah. you can't recall it, at least be smart enough to write it down. Yeah. About only about 10% of people can answer like that. And the smart ones will say, well, my best friend would say that I'm, um, you know, loyal and committed. Um, What keeps me awake at night? And they'll give short answers and they'll, you know, they'll do it. And that's what I'm looking for at Resource IT is people that are smart, smart enough to listen well Mm. or write it down and to not go off on a tangent. And as a marketing agency, when we're speaking to people, telling them, and they're telling us about their technology business, they give you so much information. Yeah. You've got to be able to recall what they've told you and take notes and have a dynamic conversation. And those are the people that we're interested in in our business. Yeah. That's really um, interesting. So I was saying, going, did you ask me those questions? Yes. Um, <laughs> and you answered them. Yes, you did. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think, and that's really interesting. And I know, like today, um, and maybe you could talk a bit about this. Actually, you know, you've been through a, a, a I guess, a huge. Um, oh, I don't want to say transformation, but things have changed in resource. I feel like you said you used to be the business and people would say, I just want to see Julie. I don't want to see anybody else. I just want to see her. But, you know, you've kind of, you're overseeing the organization now. So it'd be lovely if you could share a bit of what that has been like for you, because I know lots of people who have said, I run my own business, but I don't want to just be the business. I, I, I want to be able to sit back, enjoy it, let other people take the reins. Yeah, I um, I suffered with that for a long time. And I think, again, anybody that sells themselves mm. in business will have the same, the same challenge. Um, what I did was I learned and I actually went and got trained because and I fundamentally believe in the power of training in whatever that is, you know, recognize your weakness and go and learn how to make it stronger. Um, whether that's presentation skills or interviewing skills or um, account, you know, finance for non-finance managers or sales, mm. if you're not sales, you know, go and learn and be trained. So I got coaching and learning on delegation. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest hurdles for me was um, trusting that there were other intelligent, capable people around and that I could trust them to do a job and also accepting that people make mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, someone years ago said to me, Julie, sometimes good is good enough. And for me, it had to be perfect. And that's why I wanted to see everything and check everything and make everything happen. 
people, we're human beings, we make mistakes and mistakes yeah. happen in business. And I always feel like it's not the mistake, it's what you do about it. Mm. So I think that kind of education around delegation um, the, that I went and got for myself and learned how to do that better and be better at that. Mm. And then also, um, I definitely went through a transition of, um, of honesty. So I feel like early on, I used to try and be what was expected of me. So I would speak a certain way or present a certain way or, you know, behave in a certain way. And actually, I was coming across quite disingenuous because I wasn't being myself. Mm. And myself is actually, I think anybody that meets me would say they meet the same person, whether mm. that's the cleaner or, you know, the next door neighbor or a CEO in, you know, a big job in one of our clients. Yeah. Um, and the myself is an honest person. So when I tried to make that transition from it's not going to be me, I would just have that conversation with the customer and say, look, I know that you have great confidence in my ability. That has to go along with in my ability to choose great people that can do a fabulous job for you. So, you know, being honest about you know, introducing that other person, that other team into, if you've got any problems at all with it, of course, I'm here. I'll be keeping an eye for you, but these people are going to do a fantastic job and actually they're better qualified than I am to mm -hmm. be able to do it. And again, that just the transparency, the honesty and the confidence to be able to do that was kind of what enabled my work-life balance to get better um, and ultimately resource IT to grow. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I think um, I was thinking about some of the, you know, that you've presented with Gabriella Schuster and, but, you know, you're kind of moving in some pretty influential circles, <laughs> Julie. Um, how does that feel? Do you, like you said, you, you've kind of walked in and said, well, of course I have a right to be here. Do you, do you feel particularly in that American corporate culture? I've always seen it noted like, this is the VP of something, and this is what they what their masters was in. Was there did that, did that ever come up for you? I don't. Maybe I wasn't looking for it, but I <laughs> I kind of um, I guess because I've always grown up with the fact that most people that I've worked with had a degree or had a master's or had this or had yeah. that. And I didn't, but yeah. I just expected that that was the case. Yeah. And so I never really took any notes of it. I mean, Gabriella is one of the most supportive and empowering leaders I have ever sat down with. And I remember the first time I met her, I muscled in on a meeting that was um, <laughs> full of, it was in the US and it was yeah. at their big conference and it was all uh, white middle-aged males. Yeah. And somehow I managed to get in the room and get at the table and she, and Gabriella was talking yeah. and, um, and then she said, you know, who, who's got a question? And I asked her a very acute business question Mm. Um, right to the water at the end of the meeting and she came over and she gave me a business card and she said I would like to speak to you again wow. and I was the only person she did that to yeah. because I was I was listening to her 
I was paying attention to what she was saying. I was being smart mm -hmm. about that opportunity. And um, we have and still have a great relationship. She's a fantastic advocate for women in technology, a great friend and supporter of mine and I of her. And thank goodness for her and people like her. But I never felt intimidated at all. She just, you know... Loved it that I tell it how it is. And, and a lot of yeah. the corp people I met kind of thrived on their fun and humour of our conversation and the honesty of it. Again, just being yourself. Yeah. And we should actually, for those people that aren't part of the Microsoft ecosystem, Gabriella's current role is, please help me. <laughs> well, she, Gabriella actually left Microsoft. So Gabriella was the VP of the One Commercial Partner Group. So she owned mm. the partner channel worldwide. So that's mm. 300,000 companies that Microsoft yeah. has partners with, partnerships with. Yeah. She, Gabriella actually left and um, she does basically DNI advocacy. So mm. she's just released actually um a whole load of content around she is 100% focused on the DNI agenda and advancing um you know that in our industry and sits on a whole bunch of boards she speaks she's done a TED talk she supports any organization that is struggling with DNI she's created um a whole bunch of content and a framework and it's amazing so I would definitely recommend having a read of that if DNI is something that's important to you fantastic um, tell me a little bit about, and I'm keeping an eye on the time here, um, and this, we can't not talk about this because you said you started Resource IT, you had four children under 12, your, your children are not under 12 anymore, but as they were um, going through that process of becoming young adults, how did your experience shape the advice that you gave them, whether or not they chose to listen to that? <laughs> We'll take it on board. <laughs> yeah, well, <clears throat> so Mick had three children and they were, I think when we moved in together, they were sort of six, eight and ten, something like that. My daughter was five. Um, in terms of my daughter, uh, Tori, she now is the general manager at Resource IT. How did that shape it? So Tori was um, very academic at school. Um, she kind of went through a similar um, situation with me, but a little older, similar situation that I did, but a little older where she wanted to study hospitality and be a chef. And we all said to her, you know, you're, you'll get bored. This is not for you. But she wouldn't listen. Mm. So she went to college. And we wanted her to go to university, but she didn't want to do that. Mm. And um, she also had the same you know, she'd come home from school and I'd be like, oh, how did you get on today? Oh, yeah, we did this or that happened. And I'm like, oh, good, because you tutor phoned me at half past nine to ask me why you weren't there. <laughs> and um, <Love> it. <laughs> despite my threats, Tori qualified with a distinction uh, mm -hmm. at, at, at college, decided she wanted to be a chef. And then after a couple of years, decided she didn't want to be a chef. Yeah. and asked us for a job at Resource IT. She was about 19, I think, something like that. Yeah. Oh, I'll come, and, I'll come and work for you. You know, you've got a company. I'll come and work there. Yeah. How did it shape? The answer was no. Um, you go and get a job in the industry and educate yourself yeah. and dig in yourself and put your time and effort into your career. And when yeah. you've proven that you can be successful and committed, then we'll talk about it. 
Um, so I think the school of hard knocks that I came from, yeah, I definitely, Tori did not have an easy um, ride into resource IT. So she did get a job with an IT reseller as a marketing assistant. Mm -hmm. Then she went to work at Avnet as a distributor, then landed a job at Snow as their digital marketing leader. And that was about the advent of social media was really starting to take off then. And of course she Mm -hmm. was a digital native and a millennial. Yeah. Um, within about a year and a half, 50% of Snow's leads were coming through digital. Um, And this is a multi, multi multi-million pound business. Mm. So then she said, she came back to us, she was about 25, I think, by then. And she said, right, I've decided I'm going to work for an agency. So give me a job. I'll be working for your competition. (laughs) (laughs) And we were, okay, fair enough. Here you come, you've proved it. Um, and she's been here for six years and she now, Tori is now the general manager of resource IT and she runs the business brilliantly. Yeah. Um, so that would kind of be one example. I think, um, the, the, the challenge is that I think when you do well yourself, your children have a different experience. Mm. What we've tried to do is yes, of course they have advantages in some ways. Mm. Maybe we had nicer cars or they had holidays and they had things I never had, but that didn't mean that we didn't make them work for their own success and carry that through. And I think they've all got a fantastic work ethic Mm. Um, they all stand on their own two feet and I'm super, super proud of them. And actually none of them went to university either through their choice. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's next then? If I don't want to, you know, set the horses running, but what can you talk about that's, you know, on your radar that you fancy doing next? Well, it's interesting you say that. So remember I said that when I went to school and um, I wanted to be a travel writer and I wanted to be a journalist. Mm. So my plan is as I, over the next period of time, however that's working with um, Tori and I, she is obviously sat in the big seat now, but I'm still involved on a day-to-day basis with Dorsi IT because I love it. Yeah. Um, But I want to travel and write um full time so um that is I kind of feel like I'm sort of going full circle it's taken me 40 years yeah I might actually get to do the job that I wanted to do when I was 16 so how that manifests itself I don't know but I know that um going back to my love of art my love of English um my love of travel Mm. I'm finally you know I'm 56 in October so I'm really looking forward to hopefully in the next few years being able to do more of that yeah. and less of of kind of what I'm doing today. But hey, with the way the UK economy is going, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I just I was not expecting that. <laughs> that's really that's really cool. And what do you think? Because I think similarly, you know, I had wanted to write and perform when I was at school, but <laughs> drama teacher said to me, no. Um, <laughs> and now I get to do that, but it took decades, decades for that to happen. What What would your, I guess, what would your advice, based on sort of the stuff you've learned, the experiences you've had, what advice would you have to offer? Because you've, you've kind of got the, the piece on, you know, handing over the reins of the business and, and that lifelong learning and finding out, 
you know, I don't know how to be more honest and and tell people what's going on with you. But yeah, I guess what words of wisdom would you offer people who are maybe looking to follow your path or feel like it's too late or? I feel like the one piece of advice I would give is to be gracefully honest. And I say gracefully honest because we could all say honest things or do honest things that actually can be quite destructive. Mm. So, you know, one has to accept that, that there is a way of being honest and to do that with grace and respectfully is one way and it earns you nothing but respect. Mm. I this project isn't the right thing for us because look I've got to be honest with you something's gone wrong here but here's what I'm going to do about it mm. um you know with an employee talking to them and saying look can I be honest the you know I'm not seeing what I need in terms of how you're performing in this role but here's the things that I'd like us to focus on you know whatever the conversation is I feel like the more honest I've been mm. the more goodwill has come back to me and whenever I've tried to not be honest it's not been the same experience and my advice is I I, yeah gracefully honest is is what has helped me to um, succeed I think um, and to be honest Tony you know I've just worked hard mm. you know I just make more phone calls speak to more people make more effort yeah. you know and that is a numbers game certainly in when you're networking or trying to grow a business if you you can sit still and things will dry up or you just keep going and you just work harder and you know mm. When you do something you love, it doesn't feel like work, does it? So, No, well, this hasn't at all felt like work. And I'm thankful for your time, Julie. And, yeah, gracefully honest, I'm going to take that with me for the rest of the day <laughs> and beyond. Thank Thanks, you. Tony. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've certainly had a great time, as always. Lovely.